starting in verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city was wholly given to idolatry. Therefore disputed he in the synagogue with the Jews and with the devout persons and in the market daily with them that met with him. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans and of the Stoics encountered him. And some said, What will this babbler say? And others said, He seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him I declare unto you. God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, since he gives to all breath, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and their boundaries and their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by the art of man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of all this, by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, We will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed. Among them, Dionysius the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with him. You may be seated. Would you pray with me this morning as we begin our studying the word? Father, we ask this morning that you would reveal yourself through your word, that you would open our eyes to see that you exist. Uh, Father, we pray that you would show us both who you are and what you have done. And then, Father, impress upon all those here a compelling motive to live for you, to receive you for who you are, and to live for the one who made them. Father, if there are some here today worshiping an unknown God, I pray that you would take them from ignorance to knowledge in their understanding of who you are. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. 
I'd like to begin this morning with a question. Does God exist? Amen. Good. You know, I, I, was, I was thinking that as I put the question forward, many of you here being in the church, nod your head, of course he exists. Sure he does. Next question. It might sound like a, an odd question to ask the church. You know, when a, when a tragedy strikes, this question seems to bubble to the surface. It, it may not be the first question, but usually it's a question that lands somewhere in the mix. Questions like, how could God allow this to happen? How can these bad things happen to such good people? Is God really at work? Doesn't God care about my situation? Why does God seem so far away? And somewhere in the mix might be this question, does does God really exist? You see, the questioning and the interrogation of God comes in light of something we deem unfair, something perhaps we deem inappropriate or unbecoming a Christian. Because of the unfavorable situation, we will cry foul. Because it doesn't all add up, we then shake our fists at God, verbally chastise Him perhaps for not being present to tend to this crisis situation that I find myself in. Does God exist? If you said yes, I didn't see any no's, by the way, when I asked the question. But if you said yes, is it because he has shown you favor to this point? Would you continue to say yes if your situation changed drastically and you found yourself perhaps in a situation like Job? (laughs) Remember Job? Literally about everything was taken from him. Even physically he was filled from head to toe with boils. His wife was ready to be done with God, wasn't she? Psalm 11, verse 3, says if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? What do they do? Do we throw in the towel? Do we just call it quits when difficulty comes? What do the righteous do when arrows are flying at the very foundations that we stand on? Does God exist? You know, the very next verse in Psalm 11 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. There's also that verse that begins this Bible. It says, In the beginning, God. And yet there's also a verse in Psalm 14.1. It's also found in Psalm 53.1 that says, The fool says in his heart, There is no God. So does God exist? Genesis 1.1, among other passages, says yes. Psalm 14, verse 1, says that some in their hearts... By the way, these folks in their hearts, these folks are called fools. 
by the scripture. They are the ones that declare there is no God. There's a theist and there's an atheist. There's also one called an agnostic, which is interesting because that kind of comes into play a little bit here. The word, at least the root word does when we talk about this unknown God. One who does not know what to think about God. We oftentimes call that person a skeptic. They're just a skeptic. You know, to ask the church whether God exists might seem like a rhetorical question on the surface, but that assumes the church has a foundation of godly thinking. That assumes that the church openly receives Genesis 1-1 as the truth of the scriptures. We live in a time where the church, which, by the way, the Bible says the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, seems to no longer be quite sure about her foundations. I'm sure many of you have heard stories. Multiple attacks, multiple fronts have left the church reeling on how to function. When the foundations get shot at, what happens to the righteous? How does the church respond? Does she act in light of her grip on God's abiding presence with her? Does she act for the sake of God and His glory? If you have your Bibles open... Paul is noticeably disturbed, agitated, irritated, angry. After a short time observing this culture in Athens, and in the midst of waiting for Silas and Timothy, remember that is what he's doing in Athens, he was escorted by some brethren in Berea. And this was not some trip around the corner. This wasn't hop in the car and I'll take you down the road. This was, I'll take you about 100 miles to the sea and then we'll take you another 200 miles down to Athens. About 300 mile journey in, in all from Berea down to Athens. No light matter for the brethren to escort him. Well, that's where Paul finds himself as we come to the text today in verse 16. He is waiting. He sends a message at the end of 15 to have these brethren make sure they tell Silas and Timothy to come to him with great speed, quickly. So that's the message. So in the meantime, here's Paul by himself in this place called Athens. Now, many of you here probably know something of Athens. Probably have heard some things about Athens. In the midst of his waiting, Paul can't help but notice the statues and the altars and the shrines and the temples. Everywhere his eyes looked, the gods revealed themselves. The gods. In Athens, it would be fair to say that they believed the gods, plural, existed. A plurality of gods was normative for the Greeks... Not one God, but many gods. The more you have, the better it must be. The more you have, the more likely you are to have all of your bases covered if something goes wrong. Here's just a sampling of what you might find in terms of a plurality of gods. A, this God of fertility, 
A God of war, a God of love, a God of wisdom, a God of freedom, a God of health, just to name a few. At the time of Acts 17, Athens is approximately 500 years removed from what many call her glory days. Names like Plato, Aristotle, Socrates, Epicurus, we'll see is the founder of the Epicureans a little bit later in the text. Zenos, who the founder of the Stoics, we'll also read about. Great philosophers. Athens is also known for her intellect. Athens was the think tank of the day. Not just 500 years prior, but even now in the text we're reading, Athens is considered one of the, if not the most, intellectual centers of the day. They were very knowledgeable, and yet they were very dull. Why? Well, knowledge, for knowledge's sake, does nothing, according to the Bible, but puff up. But take the knowledge of God's word... And have the Spirit of God apply that to your heart. And all of a sudden, you become wise by God's standard. In fact, Paul says it this way as he's writing to the church at Corinth in chapter 1, starting in verse 20. And keep in mind as I read this passage, Corinth and Athens are both in the region of Achaia. Some of the things you read about in Corinthians... You could probably apply at least in part to some of what we're talking about here today. And this definitely fits. Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, Paul says, Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached. That's what he calls it, the foolishness. The foolishness of the message preached. It pleased God through the message, through the preached word, to save those who believe. For Jews request a sign. Listen to this. And Greeks seek after what? Wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, Paul says, to the Jews a stumbling block. And to the Greeks, what is that? It's deemed foolishness. A little context in light of what Paul is going to be sharing. How Greeks would hear a message that's going to be presented. The message of Christ crucified to them would be foolish. Just hold that passage in mind as we walk through Paul's proclamation in the Areopagus. Acts 17 is a a picture of a Greek Jew. Remember that Paul was a Hellenistic Jew from Tarsus. He knew a little bit about Greek culture. Having been brought up in the learned school of Gamaliel, Paul would have had some context of Greek understanding. But now his feet, as we get to 16, his feet are planted in Athens, in Greek culture. Right now he's there. He's checking the place out. And immediately stirred and irritated about what he sees. You know, something in the something inside Paul erupts as he's waiting in Athens. 
He's observing city life. His eyes have a hard time resting on something edifying. Have you ever been there? Where it's hard to look somewhere that's edifying. If you drive on the interstate long enough, you know what I'm talking about. Billboards abound that are obscene. The grocery store. You can't go into the checkout line. I mean, you have to honestly, literally take this scripture. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Because if you turn to the right or to the left when you're standing in the line, what do you see? A bunch of junk. Paul is disturbed within him on what he's seeing all around him in Athens. Shrines, temples, littered all over the place. Buildings dedicated to the gods. Altars everywhere. Idolatry abounds in the city. And church, I wonder, have you ever found yourself stirred to this degree by what's going on around you? Have you ever reached a point where enough is enough? (laughs) I've had enough. And as I read the text, I don't believe this is just Paul saying, I've had enough. I read the text and I see that Paul is grieved over the fact that so many people are giving allegiance to the very thing they're not supposed to be giving allegiance to. He's not simply agitated over the fact that Athens is swimming on idolatry. They are. He's agitated primarily, I believe, because of the glory that has been exchanged in this place. The glory intended for God has been exchanged to the creature. He talked about this, didn't he, in Romans chapter 1? Exchanging the truth of God for the lie? See, Paul is stirred in his spirit because God is not afforded his rightful place in the lives of the Athenians. I was reminded of that time when Jesus went into the temple and he saw what was going on in the temple. And remember, he starts to make a whip and overturn those tables of the money changers. And Why was God, why was he so upset? Because they were using the Father's house in a way that they ought not have been using the Father's house. His being upset and angry was because they were not giving God glory in his house. His house wasn't being used for the right purpose. And you know, there are two, as you think about Paul and where he's at right here at the beginning of this text, there are two common approaches at at this point. You can take action out of agitation, out of anger over the city's idolatry. In which case, the love of Christ is not manifested to a world that desperately needs to see that love. Or you might be inclined to just soft-pedal the situation, fearful of saying anything that might cause too much conflict, in which case... Nothing changes because the idolatry never really gets addressed. Would you agree that Paul's situation in Athens looks familiar to your situation today? Idols abounding. And yet Paul's reaction in Athens is operationally different, I believe, than many today. Very few people today seem to be provoked in the spirit, as the text says, about Idols that exist all around them. We've become okay with the idols, I think, in large part. We've befriended them in some instances. We've welcomed them in to join us along the way. 
An idol church is anything that substitutes or takes the place of or gets placed alongside of God. God, I believe, stirred Paul's heart. And now Paul is about to speak to the idolatrous situation in the city. As was his custom, we saw back in Thessalonica, it said those very words, as was his custom. He spends time in the Jewish synagogue, dialoguing with the Jews, dialoguing with those who were God-fearing and listening in the synagogue, explaining and demonstrating, no doubt, from the scriptures that this Jesus is the Christ. That's his common theme in the synagogue. He also, according to the text, is found dialoguing daily, verse 17, with those in the marketplace, the agora. And then the text says that he encounters these two groups of people, verse 18, the philosophers of the day, Epicureans and Stoics. Just a brief snippet of of these groups, just so you have a handle on who they are, what they believe. These Epicureans, in short, they were materialists. They didn't believe in the afterlife. This life is all you get. Pursue all the happiness you can in this life while at the same time avoiding any pain. They were followers of a man named Epicurus who died back in 270 B.C. And then there were those Stoics who operated according to fate. You ever heard that? Fate? They operated in that way. They believe that there are some good things that happen here and there are some bad things that happen here. These are the folks who just grin and bear it, who make every effort to act indifferently to pleasure or pain. You you heard the expression, someone who is stoic. That's the idea. Indifferent to pleasure, pain. It's it's the idea of self-mastery. That was deemed one of their greatest values. These folks were followers of a man named Zenos, who was from Cyprus. Died in five years away from Epicurus. So that's a little bit of the, of the mindset, the understanding of these folks. Can you imagine the discussion Paul might have had with these two philosophical groups? Neither one adheres to bodily resurrection. Both avoid pain or anything difficult. Epicureans cater to the flesh. Stoics subscribe all that happens to fate. Just a few minor discrepancies between the Apostle Paul and the philosophers. The marketplace may have been the meeting place where they encountered each other. But notice what the text says in verse 18. Some of them said, what does this babbler want to say? Interesting, isn't it? What does this babbler want to say? The word babbler is really an interesting, fun word to look at. It has in mind a a seed picker. A seed picker. It's referring to the the bird that, that, that picks up scraps, little odds and ends off of a scrap heap. And in this case, the reference is made of Paul that he is speaking of second-hand information. This, this babbler, according to some, seems to be bringing to their ears scraps from someone else. A potpourri of knowledge. 
The text goes on to say that there were some others who said he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them, listen, he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. Yesun, Anastasin. Jesus and the resurrection. And to those listening, at least some, it sounded to some of these philosophers like Paul was trying to advocate two new gods. And so Luke inserts a narrative here, comment, letting us know what Paul was actually speaking about. He was speaking about Jesus and the resurrection. It's, It's this subject matter that causes the philosophers to escort Paul to the main intellectual center of the day, the Areopagus, the Hill of Ares, Mars Hill. So when we look at the text in verses 19 and 20, they took him, brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know, that's key, may we know, that's all they want to do is know, they just want to know. May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears. Therefore, we want to know what these things mean. A bit of background at this point from from Luke as he's moved by the Spirit. Verse 21, he says, For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but. Nothing else but. This is how they spent their time. Either to tell or to hear some new thing. The Areopagus spent their time in nothing else but. This is what they were known for. For speaking some new thing. Hearing some new thing. The word new is in a comparative form in the original language. What's that mean? It really has in mind newer. The Areopagus desired to hear a newer thing. We might say this group of intellectual elites was after the latest fad or the next best thing. They wanted in on it. They wanted to know about it. They were information seekers. Based on what I read in the text, I wonder if the Areopagus is still functioning today in these United States of America. Right here, in fact, it might be operating in this place. Are you weighing or feel like you need to? Is there this need, there's this magnet, there's this pull, there's this attraction to weigh in on every social media discussion that's swirling around today? Do you just have to know? I gotta know. What I'm speaking to is a stewardship issue. The Areopagus spent their time in nothing else but to tell or hear some new, latest, greatest thing. Far cry from how Paul stewarded his life. It's important to know that their speaker, their next speaker who is about to stand in their midst, their next speaker is not concerned about delivering the next great word on the street. They're in for a surprise when this man stands in their midst. He's not interested in filling their heads with more information to stockpile. 
Paul has been about spending his time in nothing else but carrying out the will of the Lord Jesus Christ. And standing in the midst of the Areopagus is not going to change his itinerary one bit. Praise God. I want you to see what's about to happen in this gathering on Mars Hill. The Areopagus is set to hear yet another new thing. Paul is about to preach the gospel. Filled with the Holy Spirit, he is about to witness to Jesus, Acts 1-8. He is about to proclaim the truth. The Areopagus is present to hear some new information. Paul is present to convince his listener to see souls saved for the Lord Jesus. And I got to thinking, and I, I, just, I wonder, does this same dynamic happen on a Sunday morning? Are there some who gather simply to hear a message, some good word, some piece of information? I would want you to know I'm standing here today to see that you get God's word and that receiving God's word, you might be changed. I'm here to put God's word into play. I know that when God's word goes forth, that the Holy Spirit takes that word and he applies it to your heart, every single one of your hearts which will result in you walking in newness of life. I stand to preach realizing that this word has power to save. Verses 22 through 31. It's Paul's proclamation as he's standing in the midst of the Areopagus. 22 and 23 serve as really an, an entry point, an introduction into what Paul is going to say. 24 through 29 is really going to be the body, the, the main scope of his proclamation. And then 30 and 31 will be his, what I see, a very resounding conclusion. Look at verses 22 and 23. Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus. And he said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. By the way, just a side note. He, is, he does not say this to butter them up. This is somewhat shameful, what he's saying. But the way he says it, it's, very, uh, it's somewhat gracious in terms of speaking. In fact, it was said that for one who was speaking before the Areopagus, if they tried to Brown nose, the Areopagus, they've just essentially just get rid of them. If they tried to influence what they were going to then say, they didn't want any part of that. They wanted them to speak. In fact, from what I hear and understand, those who were going to speak before the Areopagus were given maybe a 24-hour period to put together and prepare what they were going to share in this group. They were to be there and they were to share without any notes and they were to speak this new thing to the Areopagus. That was really the way that it happened. So here's Paul. He's standing in the midst of them. He says, For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. The one you worship without knowing, 
him I proclaim to you. Remember, Paul is speaking to a culture that worships many gods. As a parallel, you might read the account of Paul while he's in Lystra. Remember, that was the place he got stoned. But those people, when he healed that man, the power of the Holy Spirit, remember they were ready to sacrifice to to he and Barnabas. The gods have come down, they said. Same idea, same concept there in Lystra. That's where Paul is at right now. The question that we started with still applies here. Does God exist? Is it possible by definition to worship many gods and still worship the God of the Bible? Think about that for just a moment. Paul's segue is one particular altar. As he made his rounds in Athens, the one altar stood out to him, to the unknown God. He starts at the point of ignorance. He's not belittling them. He's simply pointing out what they've already said. It's true. They don't know. You worship all these things. And you even have one you call unknown. What you worship without knowing. I'd like to take just a moment of your time today and put some definition to it. Nothing offensive here at the outset. He doesn't blast them for all the idols right out of the gate. He doesn't condemn them for the rebellion against the God of heaven right out of the gate. He begins his word in the context of Athens and gains a connect point with his listener. He's now going to proclaim to them. He's going to identify. He's going to unveil this previously unknown God. So look how he begins. Verse 24. God, who made the world and everything in it, does God exist? Paul's heart is that Athens would know a God does exist. All the stuff that happens, all the land that they have, all the trees, all the food, the man himself, it's not here by accident. In fact, the psalmist says in chapter 50, 10 through 12, every beast of the field is mine, God says. The cattle on a thousand hills, I know all the birds of the mountains and the wild beasts of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all its fullness. It's his. And then there's Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created. What did he create? The heavens and the earth. Paul is immediately laying the foundational elements of the gospel for the men of Athens. The foundations that are being targeted today, one of them happens to be in the arena of God as creator. You set aside God as creator... And that presents some problems with the gospel, doesn't it? You set aside God as creator and it opens the door to question further foundational doctrines. Most of which find their origin in this book of Genesis. This book of beginnings. In fact, those first 11 chapters primarily. Paul is pointing to one 
creator. God, the creator, who happens to be Lord of heaven and earth. And since he is Lord, Paul says, he does not dwell in temples made with hands. Remember the context. All around him, buildings are fashioned and named for a particular God. Presiding over a building would be a designated God. God, Paul says that this God who is unknown to you, since he's Lord over all, it's not possible to house him inside the confines of the walls. And immediately his listener might have thought, oh, this must be a big God that he's thinking of. Amen. He is. He's big. We can't box him in. It's God. God the creator. Nor is he, the text says, nor is he worshipped, verse 25, with men's hands as though he needed anything. You see, because God made the world and everything in it, and because he is Lord over heaven and earth, he doesn't need man-made images, sculptures, designs to make him more appealing. He doesn't need props to pop him up a little bit so that people can see and know and go, oh, he's good. He doesn't need that. Nothing you do with those hands of yours can upgrade this God I speak of, says Paul. He provides the reason. He goes on and says in the text, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. See, God is the creator of the world and everything in it. God is so big that none of your buildings can contain him. None of your buildings combined. You could get all of your buildings here in Athens and it still wouldn't contain him. God is also a giver. God is a giver to all. He's a giver to all of life, breath, all things. So not only did God create the world, but he created all men. He is the one who gives to all life and breath. If you're sitting here today, this would be a great time to pause, to check your pulse. Go ahead, do it just for a moment. Get your pulse. Hopefully you can hear a pulse. Either here or here, wherever, wherever it's good. Hear a pulse. Just hear that pulse. And as you hear that pulse, I want you to give him praise. Because the God who gives you that beat, that heartbeat, that pulse, same God Paul's talking about right here. Same God, this creator God. He's given you life. He has given you life. He's given you the opportunity to live today. Praise him for that. He goes on and says in verse 26, he's made from one blood. Every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. This God is big. I think of Romans 5, 12 here. It talks about through one man, through one man, the Adam, right? Through one man, his sin entered the world, right? Sin entered the world through this one man. Death through sin and thus death spread to all men because all sin. That one was Adam. After the flood, there was this man named Noah and his family. They were the only ones at that particular point in time God deemed righteous. And so they built this boat and they stepped out in faith. And for a hundred years, they built this boat while everybody's mocking. Everybody's laughing at him and thinks, Noah, you're, you're a fool. And a hundred years later, the storm comes. Door shuts. And from what I read in the Bible, there are eight people who are inside that ark. Adam doesn't seem like a fool now, does he? Excuse me, Noah doesn't seem much like a fool at this point. You see, in God's plan, every nation of men, this is, this is, every nation of men came from one man. 
This God, Paul says, orchestrated the nations long before the nations came to be. This God pre-appointed times. Now, some of us don't like that word pre-appointed. We need to get over it. That's what the Bible says. He pre-appointed the times. He pre-appointed the boundaries where these nations would be, the kinds of people that they would be. Paul's in Athens, and this, this is, doesn't take God by surprise, the fact that there's women and idols. God has arranged these times. He's arranged the boundaries of every nation in their respective places. And Paul wants his listener to know that God exists. But more than that, he wants them to understand that this God has all things under his control. He has been at work, eternity past. He is working right now in the present, and he will continue to work, as we'll see in just a few verses, in the lives of those he's created. Verse 27 gives the purpose behind why he made from one every nation. Why? This is, this is incredible to think about. Why he scattered men in the Middle East. Why he placed them in Australia. Why he placed them in South America and Los Angeles and New York and England and Africa. Why he placed them there. Why? What are they supposed to be doing in their time there? So that they should seek the Lord. In hope that they might grope for him. You know, when you think of groping, I think of sometimes... um, Sometimes I, I, I fail to keep a light on if I'm walking through the, a room and if it's dark outside. You know, as best I know, I, I kind of know where things are at in, in our house. But, you know, there's this little thing like um, toys and stuff that gets left out on the floor sometimes. And so I don't, it's like a minefield at times. And, and, I, and I always, I find myself, usually it's like late at night. Everybody's in bed, you know, and I'm, I'm turning, th- I got the light out and I have to make my way around it. And I... And I'm, I'm feeling, I'm groping, I'm trying to make my way. Sometimes I, get, I step on mine, right? But you know what I'm talking about. You, you're groping, you've been there, maybe you've been there yourself, where you're in a dark place and you're groping, you're just trying to feel along. You can't see very well. But listen to what the text says. He says they should seek the Lord and hope they may grope for him and find him. Though he's not far from each one of us. That's what verse 28 says. God has planted you, Paul says, as he's amidst the Areopagus. God has planted you in Athens that you might seek him. Hint, hint. (laughs) He planted you here to seek him. Regardless of where you are planted, Paul says God's purpose is that you would seek him. Why are we here on this earth, church? Are we not here to give him glory? Right? To worship God alone through our Lord Jesus Christ? You seek him with the light you have been given. Maybe there's not much light in the room. And maybe you have to grope a little bit. But you work with the light that you have, don't you? You make the best of the light that is there. I think about a young man named Josiah. And you remember he became king when he was eight years old. How many of you in here are eight years old? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. We got one. We got two. We got three. Three eight-year-olds. Great. I want you to listen to this, eight-year-olds. Josiah became king when he was eight. Eight years later when he became 16. How many 16-year-olds do we have in here? Raise your hand if you're 16. One. 
two, three, four, four 16-year-olds. Praise God. Wonderful. When he was 16, the Bible says that while he was still young, he began to seek the God of his father, David. Now, did Josiah, if we know the story of Josiah, we know that at 8 and at 16, Josiah had not yet found what? What he had not found yet? Remember? The book of the law. But Josiah had some light. May not have been a whole lot of light. A few weeks ago, we talked about a young man named Timothy, right? Timothy maybe didn't have a whole lot of light. His dad was, was a Greek. His mom and grandmother did a wonderful job training and teaching him in the ways of the Lord. But with the light that God gave him, he walked in that light. The hope is, according to Paul, that you grope for him and find him. Paul's saying, it is possible to find this God. Yes, and the text says, not only is it possible, he is not far from each one of us. Praise God. Taking a page from a few Greek poets, verse 28, he says, For in him, in God, we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said. Do you see the appeal here? <laughs> He's appealing to their own poets of the day. For we are also his offspring. Epimenides, who was from Crete, and Eridus, who was from Cilicia, Paul's hometown, spoke those words. We have our being in him. How true were those statements? Do we not have our being in him through Jesus Christ? We live and move because of his breath of life in us. The poet said, for we are also his offspring. Paul takes, I love this, he takes the poet's words, but he adjusts the context just slightly. Well, in a large way. Because the context here is that when the poet says, we are his offspring, he's talking about being the offspring of Zeus. Paul's, yeah, obviously, unlikely, Paul had Zeus in mind as he's writing. Paul is thinking of God, this God that he has put forth to these men he's speaking to. So continuing to build on the idea that we are the offspring of God. Look at verse 29. He says, we ought not then to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art or men's devising. And right here, church, I was drawn to one of the bedrock scriptures. Exodus chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of bondage, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that's in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Paul now has moved from describing that God is, that he exists. He's shown him to be a creator and life giver, a sustainer of all things, giver of breath, the God who is all-knowing and has seen to it that every nation on the face of the earth, wherever they may be, they are to seek him with the light that they have been given. This God does not call you to seek him and then he just goes hides. That's not the God we're talking about. 
Paul says, this God is a God who calls men to seek him that he may be found. As offspring of God, the call is to delight in him alone. The call is to abide solely in him. Look at verse 30. Turn in a corner. He says, truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere, all men everywhere. I'll say that one more time. All men everywhere to repent. As you read that verse, do you get the idea that Paul has turned a corner here in speaking to these men of Athens? When the offspring of this God starts serving other gods besides God... When they start designing other images to represent God, seeking someone else to bow down to, Paul says these times of ignorance, God overlooked. Romans 3.25 says that same idea. That God in his forbearance had overlooked these things. We need to remember, Paul started out with that unknown God. He began with what they did not know and says these times of ignorance. God overlooked, but now. Those are two key words. But now. Things are going to be different from this point forward. This God who exists, the creator God I'm speaking of, commands all men everywhere to repent. And then Paul follows that up. He didn't just throw it out there as though, hey, guys, you need to repent and leave it hanging. He throws it out there with some handles for them to hold on to. In the very next verse, he gives reason. Look at verse 31. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. So because God has appointed a day on which he will judge the world... In righteousness. God has ordained a man to judge this world. We know that man to be whom? Jesus. Okay, that's the man we're talking about. God has seen to it that this judgment is righteous. It's just. And God has given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. He's talking now about resurrection again. Oh, that ought to be a cue. That ought to be a red flag. That ought to be a boop, boop, boop. Because that got him in trouble last time. Those people they were talking to, they said, hey, we need to have you come over here because we don't get Jesus in the resurrection. And Paul has just spent much of his time talking about who this God is, trying to establish that God exists. And then he's pointing to who God is, what, what he does, and now he's turned the corner, and now he's coming back to this idea of resurrection. There's coming a day of judgment, he says. God has set aside a judge. And he's appointed all judgment to his son. John chapter 5 verse 22 says that the father has committed all judgment to the son. His son judges in righteousness. And then God assures of this righteous judgment. It's his assurance of that hinges on what we know about the empty tomb. See, Paul arrived at the Areopagus out of curiosity among the philosophers. They were puzzled about Jesus and resurrection. What is that all about? They wanted to know what it meant. Paul has now come back to the subject matter, having laid, listen, he comes back to the subject matter, having laid the foundations of God. 
A basic understanding that God exists. A, a, at the core, a theology 101. This is who God is. Because you see, understanding who God is, everything else flows out of who he is. That he exists and then let's look at who he is. Basic understanding that God exists and what God has done leads to then what God expects. Not just from the Athenians, but from all nations. The words of Paul come to a close once the resurrection from the dead idea comes into view. The narrative here comes to a halt. Look at the three responses to Paul's proclamation. Some mocked. Others wanted to hear him again on this matter. Still others joined Paul and believed. Having spoken of Christ's resurrection, I would imagine, it's not recorded for us here, but I would imagine that Paul also spoke of Christ's death and burial. Seem to be connected. And if we take that and we also understand what Paul writes in Corinthians chapter 1 about what the Greeks how the Greeks respond to Christ crucified, they deem that as foolishness. See, the gospel is embodied in Jesus through his incarnation, through his coming down out of the heavenlies here to earth, through his life here on the earth, through his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension, and his second coming. Having heard the message, the text says that some mocked. Verse 32, some mocked. Hearts that are not receptive to hear will continue to mock God, will continue to mock the word of God and God's people. Those who mock God are in for a fiery day of judgment. That's not my opinion. That's what the word says. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul says, It is a righteous thing with God. It is a righteous thing with God. To repay with tribulation those who trouble you. And to give you who are troubled rest with us. When the Lord Jesus, listen to this, is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. In flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who do not know God. And on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day, capital D, to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe. Those are sobering words. The Bible says that God is not mocked. Do not be deceived, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to the flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8. Some in the Areopagus that day said, we'll, we'll hear you again on that matter. You might even you know, see him put, put their finger up as he gets done. And, we'll hear you again on that one. Oh. No, they're kind of looking at each other. We need to hear this again. This is the group who put off making a decision. Not necessarily a bad thing if you need some time to consider what the truth is, to check it out. 
but most of the time, we will hear you again on this matter is code for, not right now, I got other things going on. These are the ones who keep putting Jesus on the shelf. They put him on the hold. It's, uh, we'll do it next week. We'll do it uh, next month. Listen, if that is you, there's a word here this morning. If that's where you're at, I want you to know something. Those who said, we'll hear you again on this matter, never got to hear Paul again on this matter. The Bible says in the very next verse, Paul departed from among them. The Bible then says in Acts 18.1 that he left Athens and he went to Corinth. He was gone. Here's the point. You have no guarantee of hearing this word again. That's the point. And so you might think it sounds good. I'll just hear it again. I'm not going to say no, but I'll just hear it. I'll just wait. Listen. The reality of that fiery judgment that I just read in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 will apply to you in the second camp. You don't get any extra benefit. There's no extra credit. There's no extra reward for saying, oh, I'll just consider that again. Because if you're lost, you're lost. If you don't have Christ, just thinking about whether or not I ought to doesn't do it. The Bible says today is the day of your salvation. Don't delay Some of you here know what this word says, and yet you've put it off. You know what it says. If you know this God whom Paul speaks of, and you know this man whom God appoints to judge the world, and you know that he's going to judge according to righteousness, and you know that this man, Jesus, died, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead and awaits a second return, what are you waiting for? Make today the day of your salvation, friends. Praise God, some joined Paul. That's the last verse. Some joined him and believed. Dionysius, the Areopagite. Think about this. Think about this. This is exciting. I get fired up when I read this verse. Dionysius, the Areopagite. He was one of the listeners as Paul is is talking. This guy leaves the Areopagus. He leaves the information-seeking business to follow Paul and walk with the Lord Jesus. That's so exciting. And this woman, Damaris. Hey, listen. And then it says there were others. I think at minimum there were four people. Others is plural, so more than one. So there had to have been at least four people. At least four. Praise God. May not have been a huge harvest in Athens. Yet. But I can't help but think that having Dionysius on board, walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, would have been a huge influence to others in the information center of Areopagus. What a big praise. Some were convinced of the truth that day in the Areopagus. Some evidence that the word can bear fruit even in a city submerged in idols. Praise God. Praise God. If the word works and bears fruit in Athens, church, that should be encouragement to your soul to know that it can bear fruit in your own home. It can bear fruit in this church body. 
It can bear fruit in places hostile and ignorant of Jesus Christ. But it takes a witness of Jesus to get it out. To get that word out. Does God exist? I believe he does. I believe he is the creator of the heavens and the earth. I believe he is Lord over all. I believe he has existed from eternity past and orchestrates all things present and future. I believe he is the giver of life and breath. I believe he sustains me each day and keeps me going. I believe he alone is God. There is none like him. I believe he calls all men everywhere to turn from their sins. The very thing that separated men from him... And turn to God, living their days in a way that reflects a repentant heart change. I believe Jesus is coming back again to judge the world in righteousness. And I believe that all men and all women are responsible before God to repent and turn to God in faith in light of that judgment. I believe that those who respond to God's grace by believing and receiving Jesus as Lord will one day be with him in heaven and will see him as he is. I believe that those who continue in their unbelief, their walking in darkness, will one day be eternally separated from God and be the recipient of God's fiery judgment in light of not knowing him and not obeying the gospel. When Paul arrived in Athens, he was stirred by the Lord regarding a city submerged in idols. He preached and taught and reasoned with the hope that some might hear and believe the truth. Taking that which was unknown, Paul holds that up and begins identifying the unknown quantity to those in Athens. What had been unknown, Paul makes known. God not only exists, church, but he calls you to relationship with himself through his son Jesus. So you believe that he exists. Do you know him? Do you know him? Dionysius did. Damaris did. And some no-named others did. I pray your name and others through your own witness would be added to that ongoing roster of names the Bible speaks of as the book of life. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope that we have in you. Thank you for the foundation that you have given to us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we can know you. Father, I pray for this church. I pray, Lord, that we would be able to see as Paul was standing in the midst of this learned group, learned from a worldly perspective because they had no idea what the truth was. I praise you for allowing Paul and using Paul to stand in the midst of that group. And Father, I'm also reminded of how Paul stewarded his time. Paul was there, he was waiting on his his friends in ministry and as he's waiting, he doesn't just stand there and, and waste his time, but he's actually in the waiting, stewarding his time. I pray we would all be stewards of time and look while we have waiting periods throughout our day, that we would be mindful of, of this particular chapter. We'd be mindful of how Paul used his time in the waiting 
That we would see all of our moments throughout our day as a period and an opportunity to serve you and look for ways that we might minister to others through you and your word. Father, we thank you that you exist. Thank you that we can come to you. Thank you that you've called us your children. And I pray, Father, that we would walk in this truth that you've given to us and call others to walk in the same truth. That together we would do that for your glory and your honor in all the days that you've given to us here. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.